Another we may put on the sick list, or at least we'll be having surgery this week, Becca Webb is to have uh, a hysterectomy on Friday, uh, Thursday, I think it is. So let's remember her in our prayers. That's Becca Webb is to have a hysterectomy on Thursday at Midtown in St. Thomas Midtown in Nashville. And so let's remember her and the family in our prayers. If you have a chance this afternoon, read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our study this evening will be based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll talk about confusion over the resurrection, what that's all about. Read 1 Corinthians 15 before our study tonight. Many people, as they pause for a moment in their life, they look back at their past and they have a lot of regrets. You may hear someone say something like, if I had it to do over again, I would, that's suggesting they have some regrets, maybe particularly with the family life. If I had it to do over, I think I would do things different and I would do it different next time. Someone else may say something like, if I could go only go back in time, if I could only go back to the time when my children were small or back when we first got married, if I could only go back in time, if I could just do it over, that's suggesting a degree of regret. Or maybe someone has said to you, or maybe you said to someone else, you'll live to regret that. There's a decision you've made, there's something you're doing, and you'll live to regret this. And you shouldn't have done that. Well, let's look at some examples of those who live to regret the decisions or actions or words that they had put forth. Let's take in the case of Mark chapter 6. Herod had made a rash promise. King Herod had said, as the daughter of Herodias comes and dances before him lewdly, and he gives her a promise, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. Quite a rash promise. And when she consulted with her mother and came back and said, I want the head of John the Baptist, that's what I want. Look at Mark 6 with me, if you will, in verse 26. Mark 6 and verse 26. The text says, And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oath and because of those who sat sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. He made a rash promise, but he wished he hadn't done that. He regretted. He never said that. He never said something that you later said, I wish I hadn't done that. I regret it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. Judas betrayed the Lord. He had a calculated thing he had done. This wasn't a thing he got caught in a moment of a squeeze, but it was a calculated thing. He had planned this thing out, and he went to the chief priest and the Pharisees and planned this thing. And Matthew chapter 27, when it was all said and done, Matthew 27 and in verse 5 says, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he brought back the money and gave it to them and threw it down at their feet. He regretted that. At this point, he wished he hadn't done that. Let's take another case. Matthew chapter 26, back up one chapter. Matthew chapter 26, the case of Peter denying the Lord. Three times he had an opportunity to stand up and say, I am with the Lord and I identify with him and I believe in him. But he said, no, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Begin to curse and to swear, saying, I don't know the man. Look at verse 75. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It's a little late now, but he regrets it. Wish he hadn't done it. Well, there are many who have family regrets. 
There are many families that have regrets. For example, there are husbands that as they have gone down the road a little ways, they look back and they, they regret they have neglected their wife. And he looks back and says, I wish I'd have done things different with my wife. I, I, just re I have regrets about how I treated her. Or maybe the wife looks back and she says, you know what, I have some regrets about how I gave my, t uh, the attention I gave to my husband. And I just have some regrets about that. Or maybe there's parents who look back and they regret that they have failed or the things that they allowed and the things they tolerated. Or it may be the children who look back as they've grown up and they are regretful of the disrespect they showed to their parents. Let's look at Proverbs, if you will. Chapter 22, I want you to see from Proverbs 22, it's better to look ahead and avoid the regrets than it is to, to press on and then look back and say, you know what, I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I had done things different. Here's what the proverb writer said. 22 in verse 3, a prudent man, that's a wise person, a person filled with wisdom that chapters 1 through 9 so well describes. A prudent man does this. He foresees evil and hides himself. But the simple, in contrast to the prudent, that's the foolish pass on and are punished in other words the foolish person presses on and don't pay any attention to something that they may regret but the wise person is a person who looks forward and he hides himself he looks down the road and says you know what if i do that i'll probably regret that so i don't want to go that direction if i do this over here that's probably something i'll regret so i don't want to go that direction either and so he looks ahead and he hides himself in the sense that he avoids the evil but the the foolish man, the simple man, simply passes on and is punished. So let's talk about family regrets. In your family circumstance, do you live the kind of life that you'll look back and you say, you know what, I don't have any regrets. I'm glad I did what I did with my family. I'm glad I raised them the way I did. I'm glad I was the husband I was. I'm glad I was the wife that I was. I'm glad I was the parent that I was. Or do you look back and say, you know what, I have some regrets about the rearing of my children, about the kind of marriage that I had, the way I approached the marriage relationship. And so this lesson is designed to be preventative in its nature so that we look back in the future at family and we do not have family regrets. Let's start with communication. Let's establish some principles and then we'll talk about if we have any regrets concerning that. Communication is the heart of a happy and a lasting marriage relationship. We communicate with those that we love. Ephesians chapter 5, these passages just talk about love. You go to those passages and you say, I don't see anything about communication. They don't mention communication, but they mention love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We'll talk about that degree of love in just a moment. But those passages in Ephesians 5 are just simply saying, husbands love your wives. Titus 2 says the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Now, if you love your husband and you love your wife, you communicate with people that you love. So if you love your husband, you communicate. If you love your wife, you communicate with them. We communicate those with whom we're close. I can't imagine having a very close friend. You say, this is my best friend I've ever had in my life. But we don't ever talk and we don't communicate and we just, we have a hard time getting along and we just don't communicate at all. Well, then you're not very close then, are you? We communicate with those that we're close to. Matthew 19 and 6 says this is the closest of relationship where a man and wife become one. They are now one flesh. They blend their lives together as if they are functioning from one mind. So we communicate with those with whom we are very, very close. A close, happy marriage is one wherein there is communication. 
Troubled and distant marriages are those where communication is broken down. Find me a home where you say, there's trouble in this home, and, and there's, there's disorder in this home, and I'll guarantee you that that's a home wherein communication has broken down somehow. They may not communicate very well. They may not be communicating effectively. Furthermore, I want to suggest to you that if you want to communicate, you say, all right, now I understand. If I love my mate, I'm going to communicate. I got that. And so I want to communicate, then here's some essentials if you want to communicate. If you want to communicate, then you're going to spend time with one another. First Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to understanding. That means you dwell with them. You spend some time with them. You spend time with people that you communicate with. And so if you want to communicate, you have to spend time. You can't be away from family constantly and truly communicate with them very well. Well, furthermore, here's another essential. If you want to communicate, you need to listen. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. You go and read the passage and you say, I didn't say anything about listening. No, but what it does say is this, that as you would that men do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You treat others the way you want to be treated. And so that means if I want others to listen to me when I have something to say, then I need to be willing to listen to others when they have something to say. Be it the child, or be it the mate, or whatever it may be, the parent. I want to listen to them because I want them to listen to me. We need to be swift to hear and slow to speak. So what that means is if I'm going to listen, I'm going to pay attention to needs and to wants and to likes. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen in order to try to understand. Not always agree, but understand. So when there is a disagreement between the husband and wife or the parent and the child, listening means I want to try to understand where you're coming from. So that I understand. I may not agree, but I want to understand what you're saying and where you're coming from. I want to understand that. That's part of listening. Listening means you're not belittling your mate. You listen with the understanding. You're not trying to listen so that you can belittle and put them down because of what they do or what they may say. If you want to communicate, you're going to have to talk. You say, go to Ephesians 5 and chapter 6 and read the entire chapter. And you say, I don't see anything in either one of those that say, you talk to your husband or wife. Well, there, there are responsibilities in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that cannot be fulfilled unless you do talk to your mate and to your children and to your parents. For example, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives. Wives, see that you reverence your husband, verse 33. Chapter 6, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Parents are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. None of those can be fulfilled unless there's some discussion and some talking taking place. Same principle in 1 Peter chapter 3. Talking means you open up and express your thoughts and your feelings. You let your mate know that you really care and you let them know that you really love them. It means you answer your mate. When they ask questions or when they say something that demands an answer or a response, you answer your mate. Because you're trying to talk, you're trying to communicate. You give them explanation, you give them clarification. What you're saying and what you're thinking and what's going on. Let's go to the Proverbs. Proverbs 18 in verse 13, you don't jump to conclusions. If you want to communicate, you don't get a little piece of information and then you jump to a conclusion and then run with that conclusion. He then answers a matter before he hears it. It is folly and shame to him. In other words, you get a little piece of information and then you build the whole story around that. What love does, 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 7 says, love believes all things. That means, as Moffat, I believe, translates that, love gives the benefit of the doubt. 
It does exactly what Proverbs 18, 13 says. And so if you want to communicate, you don't jump to conclusions. You talk, you listen, and you spend time with one another. Now let's talk about whether or not we're going to have regrets with reference to communication. With each point we're going to talk about, there will be things you'll never regret. And then here's some things you will regret if you do those. What do we mean you never will regret? When all is said and done and the dust is settled on your family, you'll never look back and regret taking time to talk to your mate. You'll never look back and regret listening to your mate. You'll never regret listening to your children. You'll never regret listening to your parents. You'll never look back and regret discussing problems. Not arguing, but discussing problems back and forth. So that you settle those problems. You'll never look back and, and regret agreeing on decisions. That we came to an agreement before we made this purchase. We made this agreement before we took this action. You'll never regret that. But I'll tell you something you may regret as you look back. You may regret problems that were unresolved. You may look back and say, you know what? We had problems in the home and we had problems in the family. And they just kept surfacing and we never worked on those and we never really resolved them. They just kept staying there and they just kept bubbling to the surface. What you may regret is that you bought something that you never agreed upon. You bought that furniture. You bought that car. You bought something that was important to you, but it wasn't to your mate, and you didn't agree on that, and that caused friction. You may regret that. You may regret that, you know what, we hardly ever talk. We live in the same household, but we don't discuss much. You may regret strained relationships where one of you has to sleep on the couch because you can't get along. I tell you what, you will never hear. You'll never hear someone say, you know what, I wish I had not communicated so well. Looking back now over all these years, I wish we hadn't communicated so well. I'll never hear anybody say that. But I tell you what you will hear. You'll hear somebody say, I wish we had worked harder on communication. Maybe this marriage would have survived. I wish we had worked a little harder at talking to our children. Maybe they wouldn't have turned out the way that they are. Things we never regret. Let's talk about attention to your mate. Family regrets. What about attention do you give to your mate? We see marriage involves this concept of leaving and cleaving. You know that passage well. Matthew 19 and verse 5, the text says that a man should leave his father and mother and should cleave unto his mate. So you leave your father and your mother. What does that mean? Well, it means you forsake, and that same word is translated leave behind. Talking about a man dying and leaving his wife behind. Remember that passage, Matthew, or rather Mark 12 and verse 19? Same word. Leave behind. So what does that mean? It means the place and the honor and the importance you have given to other family members is now being replaced and it's being given to someone else. You're now cleaving to your mate. You leave father and mother. You leave them behind and you cleave to your mate. What does the word cleave mean? A.T. Robertson observes that it means to be glued to. It's the idea of being welded or you glued to your mate. There's a new commitment in this relationship. She now takes first place and priority now. He takes first place for her, and that is now a new priority. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, this passage we talked about just a moment ago. In Ephesians chapter 5, describing the family relationship, the Apostle Paul describes putting on the new man, chapter 4, involves the kind of relationship 
the man and his wife are supposed to have. What does that involve? Well, the husband is to love his wife, beginning at verse 25. He said, husbands, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, what do I learn about the love a man is to have for his wife? Trying to develop the idea of attention to your mate, giving attention to your mate. Well, a husband is to love his wife. How is he to love her? Well, he's to love her as Christ also loved the church. How did he love the church? So much so that he gave himself for it. Let's go further in the context. Verse 25. He gave himself for her. That is, the man is to give himself for his wife if necessary. That's the degree of love. Look at verse 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. And no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Most men take care of themselves. They think of themselves. They think highly of themselves. And so he's to love his wife as himself. So he is to have a great deal of love for his wife. But furthermore, Mark 8 and verse 34 says that we are to deny ourselves. We're talking about attention should be given to our mate. That means in Mark 8 and verse 34, if you deny yourself, that means you say no to your own desires. And you give preference to your mate. You say no to selfish demands. You give attention to your mate. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, we're developing the idea of attention that your mate deserves. Giving attention to your mate. Do you have any regrets regarding that? Look at 1 Corinthians 7.33. This is in the midst of the present distress. But the one who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may, are you reading with me, please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. An unmarried man cares about the things of the Lord. Uh, an unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, how she may please the Lord, both in being holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. You say, what was that all, all that about in that context? Here's the point I want you to see. The, the desire, the natural desire, the point is this should be a natural thing in marriage that you seek to please your mate. His point in context is that this should be a, such a strong desire that it may cause problems during the present distress. That you're trying to do what's best for your mate, and you're trying to please your mate to the point that when the pressure's on, that may cause a problem. That you may be so tempted to please your mate that you neglect your service to the Lord. And he said, don't do that. But what I'm learning from that is we ought to seek to please our mate in every aspect of our life. That's the point that we're learning. So now let's go back to our regretting or not regretting things when it comes to the matter of attention to our mate. Here's something you will never regret. You'll never regret putting your wife first and above all others. You'll never look back and say, I wish I hadn't done that. You'll never regret putting your husband above all others, putting him at the top of your list of importance. You'll never regret letting your mate know that without a doubt you love them. You'll never regret caring about feelings and needs. But i tell you what you may regret. It may be that when the parents are gone, that is your aged parents are gone and you don't have them to care for anymore. And children have gone and they've left home that you come to realize that the husband and wife have little or no bond with each other. There's nothing left. Your life centered around the kids, taking care of parents, and they're gone, there's no bond. You may regret that. You may look back and you regret that you didn't show or tell your love to your mate. You may look back and say, I wish I'd, I wished I'd done better. And you may regret having spent more time with others than you did your own family, your own husband and your own wife. 
I'll tell you something you'll never hear. I've never heard a husband or wife say, you know what, I wish I'd spent less time with my mate. I, I just, now that we've been married all these years, I just wish we'd spent less time. We just spent too much time together, and we just had too much love and concern, and we just showed too much of that, and I just regret that we spent so much time. But I tell you what I do hear sometimes is I wished I had shown her more attention. I wished I'd have paid a little more attention to his needs. Family regrets. Talk about time we spend with our children. Time we spend with our children. The responsibilities we have in the home and the family requires time. Now, as we deal with some of the other points, you're going to search the passages I list and you say, I don't see anything about time. You're talking about time. There's nothing about time in Proverbs 22. Well, train a child in the way that he should go. My point is, that takes time. You can't do that without spending time with your children. You can't say, well, I'm going to train them the way they go, but, but I don't have any time for them. I don't spend any time with them at all. It takes time to do that. Here's another responsibility. Love your children. Older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. You can't do that without spending time with them. What about being an example? Like mother, like daughter, the proverb said, Ezekiel 16, 44. You can't be a good example to your children without spending time with your children. Now let's talk about what it means to spend time with your children. It's far more than a little quality time, as some have argued. Now we don't spend much time with our children, but what we do is we spend quality time. Spending time is far more than just a little quality time. It's far more than being in the same household. It's far more than going to the same place. I think we're spending time because we happen to be in the same building, the same place. It means you develop a bond with your children. You have true family time. Your children are small. You're still raising your children. Do you spend family time with your children? When they're real small, do you play with them? I know what you're doing is important in other areas, but do you take time to play with those dolls and play with those trucks and play with the balls or ride the bikes? Spend time with your children. Spending time with means you read to them. It means you talk with them. You've got time to talk. You've got time to answer questions. There's not of much moment for you, but it is for them. It means you take time to do things they ask you to do, even though it may not seem all that important to you. It means you make them realize you have time for them. They're not a nuisance. You're not too busy. You spend time building memories that they'll cherish for the rest of their lives. It means you do things together. That is, you spend time together as a family. Things that may not seem all that important, but just fact you're doing things together. You mean you spend time with your family. Let's talk about things you'll never regret. When it comes to your children, there'll never be a day that you'll regret that you spent time with your children. You'll never regret the things you left undone to have family time. You'll never look back and say, you know what, we spent family time and I, I let the yard get a little too high and uh, I didn't get out there and mow it as often as I should and I wished I'd have mowed the grass instead of spending time with my children. You'll never regret that. You'll never regret all the memories that you built with your children. You'll never regret saying, let's do this together and let's do that together. But I'll tell you what you may regret. You may regret that when... Your children grow up, they say, you know what, mom and dad didn't ever have any time to do anything with us. Mom and dad just didn't have time for that. You may regret that. 
You may regret that you didn't take more time to bond when your children are grown and they don't bond with you. You may regret that you didn't have much family time. So I was busy. I was building a business, trying to make money, trying to make an income, trying to fix things up, take care of material things. I didn't have much family time. You may regret that your children have no time for you. Tell you something you'll never hear. I've never heard a parent when their children are raised. You know what? I wish I'd spent less time with my kids when they're growing up. I, I wish we'd, we hadn't spent as much time around the family table. I wish we had never spent so much time playing. I wish we hadn't spent so much time. We just, we just spent too much time. I've never heard that. But I tell you what I have heard. I wish I had taken more time with my kids. I wish I hadn't been so busy trying to make money. I wish I hadn't been so busy in the business. I wish I hadn't been so busy doing things of my hobby so that I had time for my children. Family regrets. Let's talk about Bible study and Bible classes. You see, parents have a responsibility to teach our children. We know these passages. Well, Proverbs 22, 6, we started with that a moment ago. Train a child in the way that he should go. Well, that involves Bible things. Teaching them the scriptures. Fathers are responsible to bring the children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the text says. So fathers are responsible for that. You bear the responsibility. Mothers are involved. But the, the shoulder of responsibility is put upon the fathers. And they're to be brought up in the nurture and the training and the admonition of the Lord. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I know this is Old Testament. We noticed last week in Romans 15, the things written aforetime are written for our learning. We learned something from the Old Testament. And we'll come back to that passage in Romans 15 in a moment. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses gave the instructions as they're about to cross over into the land and conquer the land, that you need to make sure if your children are going to do right and live right and you're going to conquer the land and you're going to go into the land of promise. If that's going to happen and you're going to keep that land, then you're going to have to teach your children properly. Here's what he said. He said, you shall teach them, reading beginning at verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You use every opportunity that you have to teach the children the word of God. By the way, the word diligently is translated sharp as, as a sharp sword or a sharp edge of, a, uh, of an instrument. It means you press it into them like a sharp object. You press the word into them. You make sure they learn. You saturate your children with the word. Bible classes are an important part of that. Doing the very job that we have. What happens in Bible class? Well, we learn Bible stories. We learn things from the Old Testament. We think, well, you know, that's not important because... We live under the New Testament. I don't know why my children need to learn all that Old Testament stuff. The things written aforetime were written for our learning. What we're going to learn from those stories is patience and comfort of the scriptures. Romans 15, 3 and 4. We're going to learn some things about living the Christian life from studies of the Old Testament. Studies about Noah. Studies about Abraham. Studies about the children of Israel. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah and others. Here's something else we're going to learn in Bible class. We're going to learn how to live right in Bible class. Because the scriptures that are inspired of God are written and given for our instruction and for our correction and instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. We're going to learn something about priorities of what's important. 
about putting God first and foremost in our life. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, Peter would say, 1 Peter 3.15. So we're going to learn priorities in Bible class. There's something else we're going to learn. We're going to learn something about the text in its context. Nehemiah and several other teachers in the context of Numbers and Nehemiah 8 took the word of God and read the scriptures and gave them the text as the sense, which means they explained it. They showed it in the context. That's the same thing 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is talking about. So we learn the text in its context. What is this text talking about in its context? There's value in seeing all of that. But parents often fail their children. How so? When they don't make Bible class a priority. When Bible class is not a priority for their children. When they don't stress the need for learning the Bible. You say, well, we teach our children at home. Well, what are we teaching them when we don't take them to opportunities where they can learn and study the Bible, like the Bible class? When we don't talk to them about the Bible class and what they're learning in Bible class, and we don't make sure their lesson is prepared, and we don't make sure their lesson is being covered. Let's talk about some regrets and some things we won't regret. Here's something you'll never regret. You'll never look back when your children are raised and regret having your whole family in Bible class. Have you ever heard anyone say, I wish we'd have never gone to Bible class. That was the worst thing for my family I believe we've ever done. But the way my family turned out, they just learned too much of the Bible. They, learned, they know the Old Testament too well. You're never going to look back and regret your whole family being in Bible class. You'll never regret seeing that your child has studied their lesson. You'll never look back and say, you know what, I, I wish I'd have given more emphasis to their schoolwork and less to the Bible. I wish I'd have done that. You're never going to regret being consistent about being present. And you're never going to regret a thing they learned in Bible class. You're never going to say, you know what, I, I like the, most of what they learned, but that book, of, uh, that book of Luke is just one I wish they'd never understood. I wish they'd never touched that book. That just really ruined my children. But I'll tell you something you will regret. You may regret that your children don't know much about the Bible. When they get to adulthood and they don't seem to have a good concept of what Bible authority is, and they don't have a good concept of the Gospels, they don't have a clue what Romans is about, and they have no understanding of how Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and Revelation are to be interpreted, they don't have any clue about that. They don't know how to study the Bible. They don't know how to approach the Bible. You may regret that. You may regret when they don't go to class at all. You may have taken them a few times, but then they don't go to class at all, and they may not even go to church at all. And you may regret that they didn't learn what others have learned when you see that, you know what, there are other children that know their Bible, and they know it well, but my children don't know much about the Bible. And they don't understand much about the Bible. You may regret that. I'll tell you something you'll never hear. You'll never hear someone say, I wished I hadn't taken my children to Bible class. I just wish that never happened. I just wished I'd give anything if we'd never taken my children to Bible class. But I tell you what I have heard, and you've heard as well someone say, you know what, my only wish is that I had been more serious earlier. I got serious too late in life. I wished I'd have been serious early when my children were small where I could have guided them in the right direction. I have heard that regret. Family regrets. Let's talk about discipline for a moment. What does the Bible say about discipline 
in the family. Well, parents have a responsibility to correct behavior. They have a great responsibility. Let's go to the Proverbs for a moment and trace a few familiar passages, starting with the 13th division of Proverbs. Proverbs 13. When children discipline their, or when parents discipline their children, it's to be done because of love they have for their children and not because they're angry. Look at verse 24 of the 13th division. He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him disciplines him promptly. It's driven from love. You correct because you do care. Chapter 19, if you will. It must be done early and promptly. Chapter 19 and in verse 18, chasing your son while there is hope. In other words, while you can still mold and shape them, you don't wait till they're grown and start correcting them, but you start in their youth and you mold and shape that personality so that you don't have a monster you have to deal with later. Look at chapter 22 and in verse 15, the rod will correct misbehavior. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, the proverb says. Children will misbehave, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. The rod will make correct that misbehavior. Chapter 23, while you're still in the book of Proverbs, go to the 23rd division. Look at verse 13 and 14. It will not harm or hurt the child. Well, it may hurt in the sense there's pain, but it doesn't harm the child. Look at verse 13. Do not withhold correction from the child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. If you beat him with a rod, you'll deliver his soul from Hades. And so it will not hurt nor harm the child. It builds respect and honor. Hebrews chapter 12, Paul compares, the, if he be the writer of the book of Hebrews, the discipline that God administers through, uh, through persecution to that of the discipline of a parent. And we learn to honor and love and respect our parents. So likewise, there is good that comes from this. So the point is, it builds honor and it builds respect. So parents have a responsibility to correct behavior. A child to his left to himself, the 29th division, if you turn there for a moment, and verse 15, a child left to himself brings his mother or and father to shame. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The idea that now she has shame suggests she now regrets something. Later in life, she looks back and she regrets that she left the child to himself. She now has a monster she can't handle, and she regrets that, and there's shame involved. Now, let's consider some things we may never regret and some things we will regret. When it comes to discipline, you never will regret that you molded and shaped your child. You ever think you'll look back and say, you know what, I, I molded and shaped my child and, and I corrected misbehavior and I just regret, I, re I wish I'd just let that misbehavior go on. You'll never look back and regret that you stopped disrespect early. When the child talked back, you put it to a stop. When they misbehave, you put it to a stop and you corrected it early. You'll never regret that. You'll never look back and regret you got your child's behavior under control at an early age. You'll never regret that. But I tell you what you may regret. When a child grows up and they won't listen to you now that they're teenagers and they're adults and they don't take any advice and have no use for your instruction, you may regret that you never taught them to listen. You may regret that misbehavior now, it doesn't involve minor things, but it involves sinful action and maybe crimes because that behavior wasn't put under control. You may live to regret that you have a teenager that's rebellious now because we didn't discipline them as, you, as we should. Here's something you'll never hear. 
You'll never hear a parent say, I wish I'd allow my children to get by with more. I, I was too, I just, I, I was, I was too much interested in discipline. I wish I'd let them get by. I wish I'd let things slide. But I tell you what you will hear, and I do hear this from time to time. I wish I had known how to discipline my children back when they were small. Family regrets. Let's talk about one more thing in the lesson is yours. Let's talk about non-Christian friends. Godly parents recognize the danger of non-Christian friends. Now notice I said the danger, not that it's sinful to have a friend that's not a Christian, but there's some danger involved. What danger? Well, let's start with Galatians chapter 2. We become like those we're around. You say, Galatians 2 is not talking about non-Christians. It shows that when you're around people, there is pressure. There's peer pressure involved. Evidence? When some came in from James... I put peer pressure on Peter, and Peter acted as a hypocrite. That wasn't the only case. That same text, verse 13, even Barnabas was carried away with hypocrisy. What does that mean? That he was carried away with the peer pressure of Peter. Because of his association and his closeness to Peter, when Peter acted that way, he acted that way too. So what I'm learning from this is, we become like those people that we're around quite often. There's peer pressure. There is danger in non-Christian friends. Let's go to the 22nd division of the book of Proverbs. What happens often is that our friends teach us their ways. While it ought to be, and maybe we think we are teaching them our ways, and we're leading them to the Lord, maybe so. But it's often the case they teach us their ways. Look at Proverbs 22. Verse 24 and 25, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. Well, why is that? Lest you learn his ways. And he set a snare for you. So you're going to learn from him. He's going to teach you his ways. If it's nothing but by his example, he's going to teach you his ways. This evening we'll talk about 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and put it in its context. Evil communications corrupts good morals. That is, association with people leads you to learn their ways. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 33. Let's go to the 12th division of the book of Proverbs. Friends should be carefully chosen. Parents need to understand this. Proverbs 15 in verse 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. Now why is that? Well, look at the rest of the proverb. For the way of the wicked leads them astray because of the influence. We're talking about the danger of non-Christian friends. The godly parents see the danger of dating non-Christians. Why is that? Because parents understand dating quite often leads to marriage. And marriage is the closest of human relationships. The two become one, Genesis 2.24. Man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they become one flesh. Here's the blending of, they become one in aim and purpose and in goal. So they become one flesh. It's the closest of human relationships. Exodus 34 demonstrates how we influence one another in marriage. Let's go to the book of Exodus. While you're turning to Exodus, you'll recall from our studies of the book of Exodus recently, that God had instructed the children of Israel, you're not to marry the people of the land. When you get into the land, don't marry the people of the land. Don't intermingle and don't marry them. Now, why is that? Well, Exodus 34, beginning at verse 11, he said, there'll be a snare in your midst. And 
One of them, in verse 15, in interest of time, one of them will invite you and you'll eat of his sacrifice. Now verse 16, and you take his daughter for your sons and, and his daughters and uh, play the harlot with them and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. What's his point? You're going to start mingling with them and they're going to invite you to come to, to the feast. They're going to invite you to participate in their activities and you'll go. Next thing you know, you'll be marrying them and they'll be marrying you. And you're going to learn their ways and you'll be sacrificing to their gods just like they were. You influence one another. Parents or godly parents recognize the danger of dating non-Christians. Remember that that person they're dating will be one of the parents of your grandchildren one day. They're going to be a parent to their children. And they're going to have some responsibility to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they may not be doing that if they're not a Christian. Now, statistics say they usually lead them astray or at least weaken them. You say, well, I know some exceptions to that. They are exceptions. But generally speaking, the statistics show that marrying a non-Christian leads people astray or at least weakens them. Let's talk about things you'll never regret. You'll never regret steering your children away from non-Christian friends. I can't imagine someone raising their children and then when they get to their children are now grown and are adults looking back saying, you know what, I wish I'd have pushed them more toward non-Christians. I, I, I just really hate that I pushed them toward associating with Christians. You'll never look back and regret steering your children away from non-Christians. You'll never regret warning them about marrying a non-Christian. You'll never regret holding a tight rein on your children. But I'll tell you something you may regret. You may regret seeing your children run with the wrong crowd. That may be a heartache to you. And you may regret seeing your child suffer from living with a mate that is not spiritual. Though you warned them, others warned them, and now they've married to a, to a non-Christian and their, their marriage is running south. It's a heartache you may regret seeing your child suffer from living with a mate that's not spiritual. You may regret the toleration that put them with the wrong people. I'll tell you something you'll never hear. You'll never hear someone say, you know what, I wish I'd encouraged association with non-Christians for my kids. You know, I just didn't, I didn't really encourage them to be with the crowd and with the popular people and with the world, and I wish I'd encouraged that more. I just wish I had. You'll never hear anybody say that. But I'll tell you what you will hear. You will hear someone say, I wished I'd have been a little more strict. I wished I had been a little more emphatic about who their friends were. I wished I'd warned them more about who they married. I wished I had. Family regrets. Well, this might be the kind of study that for some is going to bring back some sorrows and heartaches. As you say, you know what, I have family regrets. But that's not really the point of the study. The point of the study is looking at those who are either not married or those who have young children. And any of the rest of us to whom that may apply to do something in the future as we go forward to prevent family regrets. Prevent family regrets in the areas of communication, giving attention to our mate, spending time with our children and studying the Bible and in discipline and in spending time with our non-Christian friends. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God, 
you die in that condition, when the judgment day comes, you'll look back and you'll regret that you never obeyed the gospel. Would you become one this morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?